Hi everyone, welcome back to The Restaurant Innovator, a podcast from the editors of FSR Magazine that features conversations with trailblazing chefs, restaurateurs, tech innovators, and other folks in the food service world who are leading the charge in creating elevated experiences for modern guests and employees alike. I'm your host and FSR editor, Callie Evergreen, joined by my colleague and co-host, Sam Danley, associate editor. I'm excited to introduce you to our special guest on today's episode, Stephanie Lind, who founded Alohi Strategic Advisors in 2015. Though best known for leading the global sales initiatives for Impossible Foods during its 2018 breakout year, Stephanie has spent 20 plus years working for food and beverage companies, including PepsiCo, Cisco, and Cary. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. Can you start off by introducing yourself and briefly walking us through your background and journey to founding ESA? Sure. First, thank you for inviting me to be here today. I'm very excited. Uh, The topics we're going to talk about are clearly some of my favorite. It's what I do every day, and and I love it. I founded Alohi almost nine years ago after working for really big companies uh, because I realized I, I wanted to have a legacy that was more about empowering people that were innovating in food, doing things that made our planet better, that was better for the people who were farming those products uh, on the planet. And it's morphed into what is now uh, you know, over 40 employees. We have clients from all over the world. We've worked to help distributors, uh, technology companies that do uh, things with food waste, as well as some of the biggest companies you've heard of, as well as some of the companies you've never heard of yet because they're so new. And, and really, we're here to help them understand how to bridge what the consumer wants, not tomorrow, but the day after next, with how they're thinking about their innovation, how they're thinking about going to market, about how they think about building out their company. Some of these are companies that are at the very beginning stages, and some are, again, global companies that have very large sales force and marketing uh, group, but are trying to understand how to, to navigate this new consumer that's coming up, the, the tail end of the millennials and Gen Z, who have very different ideas about the food system than you know the old folks like me who are Gen X and sort of ate what we got and we were happy for it. So, uh, you know, you definitely have uh, a pretty unique point of view here as someone with such a depth of experience across various companies, various channels, like we talked about in the intro. How do you apply those different perspectives to the work that you're doing now? I actually think the fact that I have worked for manufacturers as well as in distribution for two of the largest distribution or supply chain partners in the world, as well as calling on retailers, calling on food service operators and distributors, and working in the industrial or ingredient side of the business affords me an opportunity to take a step back. And and actually, I think this has always been the way that I worked. It just didn't necessarily work in the four walls of a big company, which is, you know, what is out there? What could be? uh, What, again, not what's next, but what's after next, because you should be working on what's after next today. And I think a lot of companies, particularly if they've been doing things the same way for a long time, have a tendency to just be thinking about what's next. So I, I actually think that that the breadth and depth of my experience, and I'd like to tell you that my career path was 
was well thought out. Some of it was accidental and some of it was very much on purpose. Um, but it, it absolutely gives me a lens that's very different, I think, to what most people in the industry have in terms of just looking at, at how things work. And I would also tell you that that's the same for the executive team, right? So our CEO was a director of operations for Wendy's. She worked directly for Dave Thomas. She opened 32 of her own restaurants. Our COO has worked in innovation and is a mechanical engineer by trade and has done all kinds of amazing R&D work. But he also owned his own pub with two partners in downtown St. Louis right after coming out of the Coast Guard. So again, my experience sort of is um, indicative of how Alohi works, which is we don't want to come in and be very myopic and do things the way that it's always been done. We want to take all the things we've learned and all the things that might be or that are coming up and try to bring them together to, to help our clients go farther faster. Hmm. And what is your big brand goal or your driving kind of philosophy that you know gets you up in the morning and is your main kind of mission for Alohi? Our main mission is to work with companies that want to make the world a better place. And in some cases, that means worth working with some of the biggest companies in the world to help them just get new products off the ground. If you think about the fact that 85% of new products fail and just set aside the amount of time and energy that takes, right? And how expensive that is. Think about what's going to the landfill when those products fail. Think about how much fuel is used to get those products to and from a restaurant or a grocery store. So again, to me, if I can help even bigger companies um, not just startups, be more effective in how they launch products and and when they do that and how they do it, that's better for Mother Earth, which for me is, a, that is what I want to see. I want the world to literally be, and I know it sounds, you know, sort of trite sometimes, but I do want the world to be a better place for the generations to come. And I want to do my part. Mm. So let's dive into this um, custom research report that ESA put out, diet drivers. So it's kind of, you know, why we eat what we eat, what it means. Can you kind of just walk us through how you developed this report and then kind of we can dive in from there? Sure. It, it, and it's a great question and I'm glad you asked. So one of the things that we realized in working with our clients is there's a lot of research out there for companies. But in a lot of cases, it's either not refreshed, except maybe every two years, right? And the consumer, especially today, is moving much faster than that in their decisions. Or it is, it doesn't sort of really reflect what's coming. It's more about what's now. And we wanted to be able to, number one, really understand what's driving the consumer to make the decisions they make. And not from anyone's lens, but the consumer's, right? So again, why do you make the choices you make? We, we don't come at this research with an answer in mind, which, you know, with all due respect to a lot of researchers out there, a lot of the research that's out there is biased. It's either very poorly done or it's done with a specific answer in mind. And that is not what we wanted to do because we feel like that's a disservice to our clients. And frankly, it's a disservice to the operators and distributors that we work with, right? So if we're going to bring you a product, we want to know that the consumer is actually going to buy it. 
because there's a lot of time and effort that goes into bringing a product to market. So we actually brought somebody in that we'd worked for, worked for big companies in research for 30 years and said, hey, listen, we want to create research that matters, that's asking questions that in some cases might be uncomfortable. We might get a surprise answer uh, or um, it might confirm what we've been hearing. And and we want to do it often enough, so two or three times a year, that we can catch trends as they change. And we actually saw some interesting changes just from our first one to our second one. And we actually evolved kind of the questions that we asked and how we asked them. And one of the things that came up in the most recent report, uh, which I think is fascinating, hopefully we'll talk about, is this rise of concern around food safety and contaminants, which if you think about what's in the news with microplastics, shouldn't be a surprise. But again, if you aren't doing research, but every two years and you're doing research for companies that maybe use a lot of products with microplastics, you might not want to ask that question. But at the end of the day, it's important to the consumer. So again, we we want to know that, even if it's uncomfortable, so we can help our clients. And again, our the people that we're working with every single day. We have a sales team. We call on operators every day of the week. So we want to make sure that we're addressing, again, what their consumers are thinking about. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So kind of walk us through some of the key findings here. What are some of the big takeaways when it comes to consumer preferences and what people want or what they say they want? Well, there are three macro trends that have been driving consumer decision making for the last probably six or seven years. And some of them are a little newer than others, right? Health and wellness is one, and it's a big one. That's not new. I remember hearing about that when I was driving a truck at Frito-Lay starting my career, right? We came out with a low-sodium Lay's potato chip. So that's not new, but there are certain things in our behaviors, and we can talk about the implications of Ozempic, say, and the, the diet drugs on how that's changing how people eat. So health and wellness is a huge macro trend. It's been around forever, but again, what the cons- what, how the consumer defines that, and then the implications for an operator, really fascinating. Number two is animal welfare, which is, frankly, it's a topic that can be a little touchy in food service, right? If you serve meat or fish and, and you don't quite know how to address those concerns and you struggle to figure out how to train your weight staff, that can be challenging. But at the end of the day, people are starting to ask more questions about, they're not saying they don't want to eat meat, but they, they want transparency. They're demanding transparency. And then the last one is really about Mother Earth, uh, the planet, right? So what are we doing to ensure that the planet is healthy enough to sustain future generations? Now, the irony is all three of those are across generations. They're across geographies. They're across you know, economic and social divisions, So what makes them really fascinating is that regardless of who you speak to, one, two, or all three of those are impacting how consumers think about their food. Dive into that a little deeper and you start to get into food waste is a perfect example. 71% of the consumers we spoke to are concerned about food waste. If you dig a little deeper, what does that mean? Do they understand what composting is? If you're an operator, how do you compost? Like, what is that? what do you do with that as an operator? But you think about the changes we made in COVID where, you know, now all of the delivery apps ask, do you want utensils and napkins? 
Well, if you're eating at home, maybe you don't. Do you need them? It's plastic. It's, if you're going to throw it away, that again, that's sort of falls in that waste category. And then you have huge swaths of the, the consumer space that are really looking at sodium and sugar. They want to reduce it full stop. 50% of consumers want to cut sugar. But if you're an operator, what does that mean? How do you apply that to what you're doing? And then the other one that's kind of interesting, and we hear about it a lot with for our plant-based clients is, you know, 60% of consumers want to eat less processed foods. But I would argue that the consumer's definition of processed foods versus what processed foods are actually, and, and how they're defined manufacturer to manufacturer, operator to operator, is different. So again, this is one of those things where you have to say, all right, this is what the consumer is telling us. We need to meet them where it matters for their definition and then apply it back to our operation. But again, it's, you know, they're concerned about the planet. They want to understand the implications of what they're eating on the ocean. They want to understand if it's going to wind up in a landfill. So the more you understand that that's what the consumer is thinking about, the more you can kind of trace that back to, okay, now I have a restaurant or restaurants. What do I do with that? It's mm, fascinating. You know, I want to go back to something you said about, you know, seeing all the news about microplastics. Did you survey consumers on, you know, how much things in the news or widespread media are kind of impacting how they're looking at, at what they want? No, but I think we'll add that to the next one. <laughs> what I love about what we're doing, right? Because we, we're we can, like we, the last one we did, we actually, there were some surprising things that came out. We did a little ad hoc survey to try to dig in. I think that's an interest. I mean, it clearly that's driving a lot of it, but it's a, it's a great question. And again, as an operator, if your consumer is coming in and they've just seen something on the news, whether it's a local or national or, or a podcast, even, you know, how are you keeping up to date with those things and, and training your staff to respond as well? Hmm. Yeah. And just the widespread interests uh, in contaminants. I feel like growing up, you know, it was all about romaine, lettuce, that was always in the news and recalls and things like that. So you see that stuff and it's like, oh man, like I want to make sure the restaurants I'm going to aren't using those batches and whatnot. So I think it's, it can be a little like scary. And then how do those operators communicate effectively to their customers, you know, hey, this is this is what we're doing. We're making sure we're doing this. And uh, how do you kind of go about communicating to operators how they should communicate to consumers, if that makes sense? It does. And, and frankly, that's we would view that as our job. Our job is to figure out for a client what operators we should go to. Right. So we're not just going to throw the proverbial spaghetti at the wall, but which operators make the most sense. And then Based on that, what's the right message? What's interesting is I don't think that a lot of manufacturers, and it, this is not easy, so I'm not saying it's easy, struggle to help their operator understand how to communicate that to their consumer. But again, when you think about how our behaviors changed during COVID with QR codes, you can create those messages. And a lot of the manufacturers they're working with probably have tools that they could put on their website, or the distributor has so much information uh, with GDSN, which is so opera. Do you guys know what GDSN is? Okay, so 
GDSN, the technical name is the Global Data Synchronization Network, came about as part of the Food Safety Modernization Act, and it's to drive transparency in the supply chain, the food chain. And it has a lot of tentacles. It's done a lot of good. I know it's created a lot of administrative work for operators and distributors and manufacturers alike. But what it has done is force manufacturers to be very transparent and provide a lot of information to distributors through this, let's just call it kind of the network. And that then allows the distributor to communicate a lot of information to the operator. Now, if you're an operator and ordering online from your distributor, you probably can't see everything they know about that manufacturer. But let's say you want to reduce the sodium in your recipes. You can work with your distributor sales rep to find products that have low, no free sodium to help you do that because they have this wealth of information behind the scenes. So again, it's, it's as a manufacturer calling on an operator or distributor, how do you help them understand what the consumer wants and how that translates to their concept? Because there's no one size fits all on this. And then the messaging, again, whether it's a table tent, a limited time offering, uh, using QR codes. Millennials are notorious for doing recon on a restaurant menu and the nutritionals before they go in. And by the way, Gen Z, if you've ever been on a college campus in a dining area, they are maniacal about getting out their phone and doing the QR code for what's on the menu. And colleges are telling them, this is where the fish came from. This is what's in the pasta we're serving you. Here's the nutritional content of the milk. And in some cases, maybe even to the cow it came from. They are used to getting so much information that, again, I think a lot of us aren't. And they are going to demand that from the operator. So work with your manufacturer, work with your distributor and distributor sales rep, because whether you're millennial and Gen X and boomer customers are asking for it, I can guarantee you Gen Z, like they are at the table with their phone and looking for a QR code to understand what's going to show up on their plate and where it came from. Which is, it's a great opportunity for operators to develop a relationship with that consumer, right? A, A lot of operators have tried loyalty programs and it's a bit of a struggle, but this is a great way to create a one-on-one relationship with that consumer. It's mm, great insights there already. You know, as far as, you know, connecting the dots between, you know, all these things that the consumer is saying that they want, you know, not everything is maybe feasible, you know, what can operators do to actually execute some of those in the restaurant? And, you know, if things aren't feasible, how do you kind of communicate that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, so the first thing, if I'm an operator, what I would be thinking about is what can I do within, again, the four walls of my restaurant? So what is on my menu? If I have a printed menu and it's expensive to reprint, and I would say that's maybe not sustainable to continue to reprint, what can I do with a QR code? What can I use my website to communicate? And how can I use my manufacturers and distributor reps to help me tell that message? Uh, One of the things we've talked a lot about internally is when you think about food waste, but also health and wellness, there's this trend towards, and and again, getting back to the weight loss drugs, that is going to be so fascinating for me. 
you know, they're looking for higher protein, more bioavailable protein. Uh, they're looking for more fiber, more of the macronutrients they need, and a lot more hydration. So if you dig into kind of how the Ozempics of the world are changing our heating, eating pa- patterns, and you're an operator, all right, can I create smaller meals that are more prote- protein dense? Can I from a food waste perspective, tell the consumer, hey, listen, we used to give you this ginormous plate of salad and we realized that 60% were coming back with extra. So here's what we do with the extra. It goes to a local composter who then gives it to the schools to put in their little, you know, plantings they do or to a local organic farm that feeds it to their animals to and puts it back into the soil. So there's, you know, that's out, that's a little bit inside the wall and outside the wall. You can create low sodium or low sugar versions of popular dishes. The consumer's palate has changed. So again, I would, I would ask the operator to think about when was the last time you actually changed your recipes? When was the last time you did the nutritional content to figure out how much sodium is in it? And what does the consumer actually need in the kind of daily intake? And if you reduce the sodium content, will they notice? It's not hard. I'm going to say this, and, and, I, and I do mean this with all due respect, but there's a salt and pepper shaker on the table. So as an operator, can you say, Our customers are telling us they want to reduce their sodium content. So we're going to make that easier for you. We've reduced the amount of sodium that we use, but we're giving you salt and pepper so that you can do it to your your taste a little bit. Sugar's the same thing, right? So think about when you go into a restaurant and you've got the little kind of dish of, of sugars and sugar replacements. Like consumers want control. They want transparency. Can you use a a sugar-free version of something or a reduced sugar version of of an ingredient you've been using for a long time, but tell the consumer why? Because your consumers have been asking for things that are lower in sugar. So whether it's a special menu, whether it's an LTO, if it's, you know, again, I think about going to dinner with my parents who are all about reducing their sodium intake. So whether it's a button on your menu, right? Or a special menu, and and you don't want to call it out and say it's for seniors, like that would make my parents mad. But it could be that, hey, if you want the health and wellness menu, right? Or you want the smaller size menu, right? You're trying to reduce, or the food weight, like come up with a, a, a way to think about it, but determine what's important to your customer, the diner that's coming in, and then what you can do. And again, don't just think about what's in your four walls or on your menu. What can you do outside of your four walls in the community to make those important things happen for the consumer and then tell them about it? You know, I'm I'm curious if there are any maybe unexpected findings from this research that surprised you and your clients for trends in 2024? Yeah, I honestly, for me, the big surprise was the one on food safety and contaminants. I was not prepared for that to pop up. And I think it's really interesting. The other piece that's, that's for us, I think, continues to show up. So I don't know that it's a surprise 
for us, although it seems to be a surprise for a lot of people that think plant-based is dead, the consumer continues to want plant-based products. They would, however, prefer that they be called veggie products, veggie forward. So again, I don't know that we see as many surprises because again, we're out talking to operators and we're fielding this research and other research for clients as well. It's more the case that there's so much noise in social media that counteracts what we actually hear from the consumer. That's the surprise to me. So again, if you're an operator or distributor or a manufacturer that's basing how you think about your menu and how you think about messaging to your consumer based on what you see on social media, you may actually be missing the real message. And then kind of going back to what you hinted at as far as getting outside your four walls, getting involved in the community, can we kind of delve into that a little bit deeper about how restaurant operators can really look at, you know, donations, you know, composting, getting involved if they don't know how to do that for steps? Yeah. So one of the things I didn't realize until about the past couple of years is that, your local, your recycling, I think outside of California. So California, I believe has state laws about recycling, but everywhere else, it's a local initiative. So I went from living in California for three years where I literally got a, I had three bins. I had my compost bin, I had my recycling bin, and then I had my actual garbage. I paid for the garbage to be picked up. I didn't pay for the other two. And I was amazed at how much I could put into the compost bin that I'd been, you know, just sort of throwing away. But that is in most cases a local, like village, town, city initiative. So if you're a restaurant and you want to make a difference in food waste or the landfill, work with local groups to go to city hall, make a change in, in how your garbage is handled. And by the way, garbage is a big cost for operators, right? And it can bring in rodents and pests. So it's actually good for you from a safety perspective as well. So that's something you do outside your four walls. The other thing, and it's so funny, my mom, I can remember her always telling me, never throw out your coffee grounds, Stephanie. They, roses love them. Well, it turns out not just roses, but your garden loves coffee grounds because the nitrogen it puts back in the soil. And if you are serving coffee, like hello, coffee shops or anyone that serves coffee, those coffee grounds are great for the soil. So rather than putting them in the landfill, which where they're really not going to do any good, I think there's, I can't remember where it is, but there's a little coffee shop that will literally bag up their grounds and they even sell them for a dollar for people to put in their gardens. So again, can you give it to a local garden, to a community garden, to a school garden? Um, there's a lot of, uh, one of the things that we saw in the, um, in the research was about rooftop gardens. So again, depends on zoning, but can you support or buy from a rooftop garden or a um, vertical farm? So again, that's outside the four walls. That's doing something that may not like drive dollars into your till, but again, think about what you're paying for all that garbage pickup and all the, you know, God forbid, 
uh, rodents that may be showing up because of that garbage? Can you reduce that impact on your business and frankly have a really great message for your community? That, you know, I mean, that to me is, is when I think about outside the four walls and then the other piece is, is the obvious one is, you know, donating to food banks. Like how can you use your power as someone in the food system to either feed the elderly or feed the young. And we have a lot of people who are at risk for hunger and malnutrition, even here in the country. That's a way to talk about um, if you're going to do a low sodium or more veggie forward menu item, right? Can you donate to the food food bank? And again, I, I realize that there are there can be legal challenges. There are things that you can and can't do, but those are great initiatives. If you can't donate to them, go work a day, donate a certain portion of your uh, revenues for a day. Th- those things really matter to consumers now because it's a, they feel good that they're giving back through your organization. You know, speaking of kind of the idea of the messaging and communicating around this, Something that comes up a lot in discussions around topics that touch on the environment is this idea of greenwashing or coming across as insincere or, you know, you're using sustainability as like a marketing ploy. I'm just curious to get your thoughts on that. Like, how can restaurants, you know, showcase the positive impact that they're having, you know, give themselves the credit they deserve? without maybe venturing into that greenwashing territory? Well, again, this is one where if they're doing it because their consumer demands it, then they're not greenwashing. They're doing what what their consumer wants or expects them to do. If they're doing it because it gives them free PR or they need it for an investor, that's when you get into greenwashing. Again, I don't, this may not be for every operator immediately, but I think we can all do, we can all do things, right? So just choose the things that you can do within, within your four walls and outside your four walls and do it consistently. And it's okay to tell the consumer, hey, listen, we're doing this food waste thing the composting, because number one, it's good for Mother Earth, but also number two, it helps us reduce our costs as a business, which means we can keep our prices where they are versus continually having to move them up because it's becoming more and more expensive to move food, to keep food cold, to dispose of the food that's not eaten. It's a, I, I, don't, I don't think consumers are as dumb as sometimes we want them to be from a business perspective. So, and I think sometimes you can even charge them more. I would pay more at a restaurant who gave me my to-go in something that is not styrofoam or the little plastic um, number five containers, because I can't do anything with those other than look at them and think, oh my God, I am literally just sending that to the landfill. Hmm. Are there maybe different applications from this consumer study uh, for maybe a fine dining establishment versus how it could apply to like a quick service McDonald's or Wendy's? Absolutely. So again, uh, the, the questions in the, in the research are very broad. 
So when I think about one of the questions we asked was, and bear with me because I, uh, I looked at it, but I don't remember the exact question. We have a very smart market research that does that part to make sure it's valid. But it was basically like, what are the, what are the, the, what's the nomenclature that tells you that something is better for you, right? And it was local, natural, organic. Now, is McDonald's going to have a, an organic menu? No. Nor would the consumer expect that, right? So that would be silly. But if you're a fine dining restaurant buying from, and they've been doing this for ages, just maybe not getting credit from a, you know, good for the planet sort of way, but it was, you know, part of just their um, brand, but they, they do source a lot from local. They do source a lot of organic. Um, so I think fine dine actually has a lot, a lot more room to, have that message. Now it's a little more difficult because they may not want you breaking out your phone and looking at QR codes, but they can do, they can do it other ways. And and they do have a tendency to tell you on your menu, you know, where things come from. If I'm a QSR, well, do you really need a straw with that drink? Cause if you're not going to use the straw, I'd rather not give it to you. It saves me money that I can then keep those cost of your food down, but also it's not going to end up in the ocean strangling a turtle or whatever, you know, path you want to go with it. Right. So again, it's, it's, you have to do what makes sense for your concept and what makes sense for your consumer, but the applications cross all different types of operations. And again, whether, if you think this is all baloney and you don't believe in it, that's fine. But again, I challenge you go to a college campus into the cafeteria and watch how they select their food and the research they literally do in line to get their lunch. It's fascinating. And that is the consumer of tomorrow. <laughs> so again, if nothing else, just be prepared for that. Yeah, for as much talk as you hear of, you know, restaurants wanting to figure out what, you know, Gen Z is wanting, you don't hear a lot of research coming out of, you know, here's what is happening on college campuses, what they're doing in the dining hall, and here's how you can apply it to your restaurant. You would think there would be more on that. <laughs> it's I guess we, because we interact with so many different types of operators, um, and we do a ton with uh, college campuses. I guess maybe we just see it more, but, and in it, but you think about the big corporate ca cafeterias, even before COVID, if you've never had the pleasure of, of eating at a Google cafe, like, wow. Um, but they were great. And they're, their their employees, they wanted to know, like, where's it coming from? I just, I was just at an event a couple of months ago with a gal who buys Basically, she runs the food and beverage program from a procurement standpoint for one of the biggest banks in the country. And just in her little part of the country, I think there were like 30 different buildings with employees that they were feeding. And she said, you know, we have corporate mandates that say we have to do certain things, whether it's, again, the health and wellness of our employees or for the planet. Um, both of those, by the way. But also our employees have a voice in what we bring in. So a lot of these big companies, when they are bringing new products into the cafeteria, they'll actually do some research as well to see what resonates. And they're providing information to the employee as well. 
So again, if you're if you're not going to a big corporate office or you're not eating in a college cafeteria, you may not see it. But but those folks are trained to break out their phone and to learn about what they're eating. And to me, the the QR code from COVID, I think, is the gift that needs to keep giving. Why why not have your nutritionals available, whether it's on your website or on a QR code, it's a little more difficult on your menu. And again, I don't advocate reprinting menus all the time. I don't advocate at this point printing them at all. That's just me. Now I say that and then I get to the restaurant and I look at my phone and I can't read it, but that's a different <laughs> discussion. <laughs> um, but but yeah, there's there's a lot of different ways to use technology to give your message as a restaurant owner and Again, look out look outside your four walls for how that consumer is learning about their food in other places, even in grocery stores. You can learn so much about the products as you go down the aisle, whether it's just taking a picture and using apps that can tell you about it. But they're used consumers are used to getting information and they expect it. And your your manufacturers and distributors have so much information and they want to help. So again, how do you do that? It's got to resonate with your consumers. It has to match your brand. That's important. So I, the greenwashing question is a great one. I don't, I don't advocate for you to have a full menu of fried foods and tomorrow if you decide you're going to go completely kind of vegan, organic, no salt, no sugar. I mean, that makes no sense. But for... For some operations that might be, again, and we're going into Veganuary, right? You guys know what that is? The big mm-hmm. vegan, like January, like, and people sign up to be plant-based, but that thing goes into Lent, which by the way, is sort of like, oh, at least vegetarian, right? And then you go in April to, what is it? Earth Day and then World Ocean Day. So you have this first half of the year where people are seeking, and there's a lot of discussion around our food under the guise of health and wellness and the planet. So can you take advantage of that in a way that, again, it's, it's there, it's happening. Hmm. You know, to touch on your other study here, the taste of change about, you know, Mm -hmm. cell cultured meat. Mm -hmm. um, Can you just kind of walk us through that study and research process and your findings from that? Yeah. So we, in our first diet drivers, we asked a lot of questions about plant-based and then all the kind of other iterations of alternative proteins, one of which is cell-based. They're cell-based, precision fermentation, like there's there's this whole other world under alternative proteins, which if you ever want to talk about it, I am an encyclopedia on that. And I think it's fascinating. But cell-based is one that has I think a lot of promise. I think it's very much misunderstood by the general population. I think there's a lot of noise out there um, giving misinformation. But at the end of the day, it's you're you're essentially creating, let's call it a chicken breast, made from it's chicken cells, but no chicken was harmed in the making of it. So they use uh, processes to, and it again, it's it's a really fascinating process, and it's. Again, people kind of say, oh, it's food, it's Franken food, it's food science. Well, yes, it is science, but all cooking is, by the way, chemistry, if you think about it. 
just by virtue of adding heat to something that's chemistry. But it's um, for countries like Singapore or the Middle East or even parts of sub-Saharan Africa where they don't have arable land, they cannot produce enough food or the food doesn't have the nutrition content for their people to be anything other than malnourished. It's a way for them to provide protein without having to have it either brought in from other countries or use the little bit of arable land that they have or water resources that they don't have. And long story short, what we wanted to know is, so we know what it is because we're in the middle of it. We deal with a lot of companies in this space and it's fascinating. But what does the consumer know? And what do they think about it? And it turns out that a lot of them sort of thought they'd heard of it, but they weren't really sure we asked questions initially around like, do you know what this is? And then in this taste of change, what we did is we went back and we dug in deeper. So this is what we're doing with, when we do the diet drivers. If there's something that comes out of it that we're like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, we'll go and do a taste of change. And in this case, we were not surprised by what we got on cell base. We actually thought there were more people that thought they knew what it was and were willing to try it. They were like, let's dig into that. And in this case, we actually gave them a definition of it and said, now you said that you would try it or you wouldn't try it. But now that you actually know what it is, does that change how you think about it? And the answer is it actually did considerably change, mostly for the better, the consumer's willingness to try it, which gets back to the idea that in a lot of cases, we in the food industry, and I'm looking at you, especially manufacturers, we use terms like ultra processed or regenerative agriculture or cell based. And the consumer actually doesn't know what that means. And But it's important to them. So again, I guess not a surprise from the research, but as we ask questions different ways, a lot of the, the, so regenerative agriculture is a perfect example. If you pull apart the definition of that and you ask the consumer if they know what it is, they don't really know what it is. But if you ask them what's important to them, a lot of the tenets of regenerative agriculture are important to them. It pops up in those answers. So for cell-based, what we realized is the consumer didn't really know what it was, not a shock. When you explain it to them, they actually are more likely to try it than they would have been otherwise. Um, what that means for companies in that space is that they've got to be really good at educating the consumer and it, it's going to take some time, but that's okay because from a regulatory standpoint for the US, it's like, and the ability to make it because it's not easy and it's not cheap to build the infrastructure, when it gets here, I think it'll be game-changing. But until, and again, by the way, it's not, this is the part that just fascinates me. It's not just about like, am I going to get my steak or my chicken? Um, we worked with a, a company out of France that's using this technology to make foie gras. And it is phenomenal. I love foie gras. It's illegal in some cities in the U.S., but it would be legal now because it's not, you're not basically fattening a goose and then slaughtering it just for its liver because they can produce it 
differently. Oysters. I love oysters. I love shellfish. But again, if you start to look at the health of the oceans, pulling them out is bad for the ocean, right? Because they're the filters, but also they're the filters, Ugh. right? So, but now I can have oysters and not hurt the, the ocean. And I don't have to worry about, you know, I can't remember what the rule is, but you're not supposed to eat them in a month that ends in Y. By the way, I did that. Don't do it. And it's because of the heat of the ocean. It, 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 they're not um, safe to eat. But now you can have oysters 24-7. It, it's, really, it's really fascinating. And I guess I would challenge operators, regardless of this, if you think this is going to be on your menu anytime soon, um, and we would love to, to talk to you about it, just knowing what's coming is really fascinating. And in a lot of cases, your consumers, again, that millennial Gen Z cohort who are a veto vote on where mom and dad and you kind of their friend groups go to eat, they're, they're looking at this. They're, they're reading about it. It's important to them because again, for them, it's either an animal welfare or a planetary issue. But for mom and dad, it might be a health and wellness issue but they get to the same place. Yeah, you know, I, I completely agree. I think that whole space is so fascinating. I actually joined the FSR team after covering like the food technology and CPG space. And ah. it was so cool to just watch the like progression and advancement in the cultivated meat, cell-based meat, all sorts of cool stuff. You know, kind of starting to wrap up here, you mentioned in the context of the cell-based meat, you know, there's a lot of noise out there. I'm curious, you know, zooming out just in general, are there any maybe false trends out there or food fads in the news that operators should ignore things that you think won't be long-term trends? I think, I think plant-based as we know it, right now or what we've seen over the last couple of years is, I'm not going to say it's a false trend, but I think the consumer and the space is going to change to be more, just really about more veggie forward, right? And about pulling meat out of the diet, not completely, right? We're not all going vegan. I'm sorry to all my friends who are vegan. Um, there's a, a term that we created. Oh gosh, I want to say like flexitarian. No, that is not a consumer the consumer uses. So this is, again, when we get back to what the consumer says versus how we all talk about it as an industry is problematic. Mm. I want to say it's something like 80% of us are eat meat, right? When you break that down, like two thirds of that 80% are, might eat meat, but really want to reduce the amount or types of meat they eat. So what does that mean? Well, it means more veggies. And they may not say they want to be plant-based. So again, I I wouldn't say that it's a false fad as much as, again, the consumer is changing how they think about things. And I don't think as an industry, manufacturers, distributors, especially, use nomenclature that matches how the consumer thinks about it. And that's the challenge I would give to everyone out there. And I know we all want to own our space and, you know, have a brand and our messaging, but, and, and it's another reason we do this research. Like 
it's great that we talk about regenerative agriculture and I am absolutely all about it, but that's not what the consumer today, at least, is calling it for the most part. So how do you take that, that trendy nomenclature we're using as an industry and then go back and look at um, how the consumer talks about it? The one trend I think that is not a false trend, but has different implications are these weight loss drugs. So again, there was a lot of like, oh my gosh, the sky is falling. Like the snack companies are going to go out of business and like, nobody's going to want a donut. I promise you people still want donuts, but what they might want is a smaller serving size and they might want it to be a little more dense with nutrition because they're not eating as much, but where it gets really interesting I just read this. They're finding all these other ways that these drugs impact us from a health perspective. And I just read that, and I think it was Ozempic specifically because they each have to do their own testing, but a lot of them are the same. So it will be broad. Uh, it reduces the the craving for alcohol significantly. So if I'm a restaurant that has a big bar business, I'm now thinking about how do I turn that into mocktails, right? Do I, and by the way, now I don't have to have a liquor license. So if I'm a, a restaurant down the street from somebody who has a big bar business, is that an opportunity for me to grab the mocktail business in a big way? And I don't have to get a liquor license. Um, so it's just like, it's just fascinating to me if you, again, take a step back and understand what the consumer wants how they think about it and what the implications are for how they choose to eat and then apply it inside your four walls and outside your four walls in a way that's true to your brand and what you can do operationally. That The, the operators that do that, and by the way, rely on their manufacturer partners and their distributor partners to help them get to that messaging and get to the right sort of menu to answer those consumer needs, that's who's going to win. Hmm. Well, I feel like you've given away enough of your secrets over the. <laughs> no, thank you so much though. This has been great. If any listeners out there are curious to learn more about, you know, your studies, um, what are, you know, what's a good contact or um, website they can go to? They can go to our website. So it's www.alohi.us. Uh, we have a form on there where you can just reach out or you can send an email to info at alohi.us. I'm on LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn. You can always link with me. But we love, we love this industry. We have all spent a lot of time in this industry. And we want to see operators and distributors and manufacturers really figure out how to deliver on what the consumer wants. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much again for joining us on this podcast. And thanks to all of our listeners out there. Stay tuned for more.